0: in the course of three weeks, and I thought that was fun. Let's do it again. So um, this week we're going to start on Ezra, the book of Ezra. Um, it's right after Second Chronicles, right before Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If your Bible is exactly like mine, it's on page 389. If it's not, then it's on a different page. Amen. The book of Ezra, we're not going to get very far into it tonight. Uh, but who wants to who who uh, who likes to see God flex in His own Word, Amen. And so that's what we're gonna see tonight. Is we're gonna see, um, we're gonna see God flex tonight through the power of His prophecy, through His um, wisdom, and uh, just all that He's shown us in His Word. So the Book of Ezra, um, the the Book of Ezra itself documents. The first, the second, and the third wave of Israelites who are returning to Israel after their captivity in Babylon. Um, and in the events uh, of being defeated by Babylon, Israel's city, uh, capital city of Jerusalem was burned and destroyed and left in ruins along with the temple of God itself in that city. And a majority of Israelites were taken into captivity and they were hauled into, off into foreign lands um, in which they were held captive for 70 years. And uh, Israel, in this process, was originally defeated and captured by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But during their time in captivity, Persia uh, conquered Babylon and then took over the captivity of the Israelites. And the book of Israel be- uh, uh, Ezra begins in the first year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia as he took over captivity um, of Israel in Babylon. Uh, So tonight, I'm going to preach a sermon from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, I've given it a nice long title, Prophecy of Cyrus and God's All-Knowing Power. Let's pray. Father God, help us tonight, Lord, that your Spirit would speak to your people. Lord, not by uh, my words, God, or by... My intellect, God, but by your spirit, God, show us what you have for us tonight. Let no one leave this place, Lord, untouched by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, the book of Ezra, chapter one, we're going to start off with one verse from uh, chapter one. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, uh, first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in that, uh, in that, wow, sorry, guys, let me start over. Lord, help me. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, before we get to what he did put in writing, um, I want to uh, break down a little bit for you guys who this Cyrus guy is. So Israel has been in captivity for some time uh, by Babylon, which at the time when they defeated the Israelites was considered to be the greatest power of the world. Well, during their captivity, Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, uh, gained some clout himself and became quite powerful as well. And towards the end of the 70 years, they came in in the year 539 B.C., and Cyrus, king of Persia, defeated and takes control over Babylon by way of the Mede army. Mede was a, a nation that was under the control of King Cyrus of Persia. And we see this take place in the Bible in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 through 31. It says, That very night, uh, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, as I said, Mede was under the control of Persia, so this is effectively Persia taking over control of Babylon. Um, That can cause some confusion for people. Sometimes they see, well, it says Mede took them over, but then now uh, all of a sudden over here, Persia's in charge. Well, it's because Persia was in charge of Mede, and then Mede was the army that he used simply enough. Um, Cyrus was king over Persia and over Mede, and many other territories as well, but these are the two pertaining to our text tonight. And Babylon uh, was his newest claim of power. And in the first year of his reign over Babylon, that's what our text starts off with, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, this isn't his first year as king of Persia, but his first year as king over Babylon as well. And God works on Cyrus, the most powerful man in the world, to fulfill his prophecy and set Israel free. That's just as it says in verse 1. It says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet of God. He's got his own book in the Bible called the book of Jeremiah. And it's full of prophecies that he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. And in that book, you see Jeremiah proclaim, uh, uh, proclaim the prophecy that Israel would go into captivity for 70 years before they actually went into that captivity. We see this in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 through 12. says, The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation... And the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So this was the fulfillment of God's prophecy that we read right here. It says the king and the nation of Babylon had been punished by Persia, by way of King Cyrus defeating them and crushing them and taking them over. So this is one fulfilled prophecy just in in, uh, verse 1. And Two fulfilled prophecy by the 70 years. This is coming to the end of 70 years, just as God had said um, that they would be in captivity for 70 years. And if you read the story leading up to their captivity, um, there's other prophets who were falsely prophesying, saying, no guys, it's okay, we're only going to be in captivity for two years. And he ended up, of course, being wrong. Um, Jeremiah 29:10 again uh, the prophecy one more time says for thus says the Lord when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will visit you and I will fulfill you My promise and bring you back to this place. So God's saying listen, you guys are being punished I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet warning you guys to repent and you did not so now you will be carried away for 70 years into captivity But after the 70 years, I will restore you. I will bring you back home. And how many know our God is a promise keeper? When He says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. He doesn't rely on us to be worthy of it. He doesn't rely on us to to do anything other than just believe that He's going to do what He says He will do. But also beyond that, this isn't the only prophecy fulfilled through Cyrus and through the life of this man. In fact, this fulfillment of prophecy that I'm about to speak of is one of the most remarkable prophecies that are spoken and fulfilled in the Old Testament. But before we get to that, let's read what Cyrus says he's going to do for the nation of Israel in verses 2 through 4. It says, Thus says Cyrus, this is the, pro- the proclamation of King Cyrus, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is, among you, uh, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, he is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus makes this proclamation that he is going to let all of the Israelites go. And not only is he going to let all of the Israelites go, he's going to fund the rebuilding of their temple. This is a man of the world. It's, it's, he, he says, uh, the, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the key. So he gives credit to God, but um, many scholars agree that this is nothing more than a political way of saying it. He's trying to uh, be political with the Jewish people. In fact, there is historical documentations um, that he made similar statements to the other people um, in Chaldea, uh, commending their God that they follow. He's nothing more than a politician of the world. He is uh, certainly not considered to be... Um, A man who fears God and God alone. But what we do see is him moving on behalf of God's people. Not only letting them free, but forking over a lot of money to rebuild their temple. I mean, if you read uh, in the Bible what it takes to rebuild the, the temple, you're talking about thousands upon thousands of pounds of gold. And that alone right there is like billions of dollars in today's day. It's a very expensive feat. He would have to transport all of the materials. This is a very big statement that he's making, that he's going to do for the nation of Israel. Now, here's where we get to geek out on God's prophecy here. This is the, the first prophecy was cool, but this one is even cooler. Everything we just read, verses 1 through 4, is the beginning of the fulfillment of another prophecy. The prophet... Isaiah prophesied about King Cyrus, and he made this prophecy about King Cyrus 140 years before Cyrus was even born. Isaiah prophesied that he would do exactly just this that he would let Israel out of captivity, that he would crush their oppressors, that he would subdue nations in the process, and that he would say, Of Jerusalem she shall be built, and of the temple your foundations will be laid. Pretty amazing. This is 140 years before uh, the birth of Cyrus himself, long before the destruction, before the Jer- Jerusalem and the temple were even destroyed, long before Babylon had conquered Israel and taken them captive. But the truly amazing part about this prophecy is that Isaiah's prophecy, when he, when he uh, speaks this of the Lord, he prophesies about King Cyrus by name specifically. We see this in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 28, continuing to chapter 45, verse 1, which says, I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, this is 104 years before the man is born, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him, the gates that may not be closed. That is amazing. I mean, I don't know if you guys realize how amazing that is. He calls out this man 140 years before he's born that this will happen. This is a tremendous example of God being omnipotent. Anybody know that word? There's three popular words to describe God. Uh, One of them is omnipotent, and the definition of that word means having unlimited power and able to do anything. We see God take this man Cyrus, and you might say, wow, God controlled the most powerful man in the world. But based off of this text, you might even argue that God made him the most powerful man in the world and then uh, influenced him to do his will, despite the fact that he didn't even consider himself to be fearful of God. That is our God, omnipotent. He's also omniscient, which means all-knowing or knowing everything. God knows it all. He knows everything from the beginning to the end. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your yesterday and he knows your tomorrow. Our God is the most can use the most powerful king on earth. He can use the most powerful men on earth for his will, for his plan. And he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He knows the birth of future rola- rulers and the future of all of us. And this is a pretty amazing thing to witness to see that God could, uh, could influence one of the most powerful men in the world at this time to do something so generous and so extreme. And you see people share testimonies all the time, like people who, who like people who will come up and be like, I don't even believe in God, but God told me to give you this money. And it's like, what? <laughs> and you, I've heard, I don't know about you guys, but I've heard stories like, I don't believe in God, but God told me to get, okay, well, first of all, you need to figure out what you believe. Second of all, thank you, God bless you. <laughs> God is good. God can influence people of the world to do His will. He is that powerful. He is that knowing that that He can get things done. And this isn't the only time that God used some of the most powerful people on earth to do His will. You see, many of us are familiar with this. Maybe not all of the details, but at midnight on May 14th, 1948, the provisional government of Israel proclaimed a new state of Israel... And on that same date, the United States, in the person of President Truman, recognized the provisional Jewish government as the de facto authority of the Jewish state. And Israel became a recognized country again for the first time in almost 2,000 years. Another remarkable example of prophecy coming true and this one is more modern to us than Cyrus and this was something that was considered to be impossible for for hundreds of years people looked at the prophecy in the Bible that we're about to read that said that Israel would be reestablished and in 19 19- uh, 1948, this prophecy came true, something that many people for hundreds of years said there is no way it could happen. The entire earth has been uh, discovered, established, the nations, it, countries changing in the 1900s was not common. You know, back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people would be like, well, I guess I'm going to take this land now and they'd conquer it and then they would become their country. We didn't live in that type of world anymore. It didn't go that way anymore. And people would say, there's no way. This proves God is a liar, that this will not happen. It's impossible for a country to appear out of nowhere. But yet, in 1948, that's exactly what God did by way of some of the most powerful men on earth. The President of the United States and many other leaders around the world officially recognized the formation Of Israel becoming a country again in 1948, a true and powerful miracle. But this taking place was prophesied to happen in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 12 through 14, which says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and I will cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And also in verses 21 through 22 says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all and they shall no longer be two nations for shall they ever be divided for shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms ever again. These prophecies we see is, is a prophecy of Israel being scattered, the nation ceasing to exist. The first part of that prophecy came true uh, not long after Jesus ascended into heaven. So at this point, the, the, there was two prophecies to be fulfilled. One, that Israel would cease to become a nation. That hadn't happened yet. Um, and then that actually happened. They, they were no longer a nation. Uh, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's documented in in secular history as well. Um, And then it prophesied that sometime after that, that Israel would become a nation again. And not only would Israel become a nation again, but that they would become one nation. Now, if you're not familiar with what I mean, after the rule of King Solomon in Israel, Israel was actually broken into two uh, nations, which was Israel And Judah. That's why you read through the Old Testament. It talks about uh, Judah and Israel as two separate things. It's because they kind of were. They each had their own kings. Every now and then they'd be friends and every now and then they'd be enemies, but ultimately they were all the Jewish people, all God's people. And in that text, God prophesied that someday he would bring them together again and they would be one nation, which is exactly what happened in 1948. Modern history a nation came out of nowhere by only the miracle of God. And prophecy was fulfilled before the very eyes of some people who are still alive to this day. God's will will be accomplished. No man is too powerful to stop that from happening. In fact, no man is too powerful for God to, to use to fulfill his prophecy. He used Cyrus, the most powerful man on earth, not a believer. He used our President of the United States in the 1940s and other leaders around the world, which I'm sure at least some of them were not believers. But God used these men to advance His will because as powerful as they were as men on earth, our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful and all-able. And Isaiah, the prophet, knew this very well as well. Isaiah chapter 46 Verses 8 through 11, he writes, Remember this, this is a prophecy being spoken, Remember this, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times to things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose." calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is our God. that He says it doesn't matter when it is, how it is, who it is, what it is. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. He says he declares the beginning from the end things that have happened he knows it things that are going to happen he knows it. He says my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is our omnipotent, our omnipresent, uh, our omni omniscient and omnipresent God is in control. Omnipresent is the third one which means literally being present everywhere and that's a God it's a word basically created To describe God, it didn't really exist outside of Him. So our God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing and He's all-present. Beginning and end, front to back, top to bottom. He's got it all under control and His will will take place. As Isaiah says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So in other words, God is saying, with or without you, I will accomplish my will. None of us can put a wrench in God's plans. It just doesn't happen. The will of God uh, is kind of like this. Get on or get out and get run over. We either get with the program or we end up outside of the program and watching what's happening. Because this train is chugging along no matter what. God's will is going to take place and it cannot be stopped. And Cyrus was used for God's glory And he was not even a righteous man. So what then do you think God would do for you and I? What do you think God would do with you and I? People who are desiring and willing to submit to his will to be a servant for his glory. Think about this. He uses people who don't even believe in him to advance his will. How much more can he use a person just like you and I who is willing to be used by God for his glory? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. A text that applies to the church to this day says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's amazing. God has works for us, designed for us, planned for us, that we should walk in them. He has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. But yet, if we decide we're not going to do that, guess what? His plans aren't thrown off. He'll make it happen. He's, we're, we're just not that smart. But the Bible tells us, the book of Ephesians tells us that we are His workmanship. That we are created in Christ Jesus for His good works that God has for us. He knows our beginning and our end. He knows the very second we were conceived and He knows already when our life will come to an end. And He knows everything that He has planned for you beginning to end. I say it all the time and I'll say it again. If your heart is beating, God has a plan for you. If you have a pulse, God can use you. And that is undoubtedly true because our scriptures tell us that God has a walk specifically for us and his desire for all of us is that we would be saved and be used for his glory 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, uh, slowness but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance what a gracious God we serve, that when we, when we do dumb stuff, when we say stupid things, when we even curse His name, that He's still patiently waiting for us to repent so that we could be used and become partakers in His will. The Lord wants us to be partakers in His will. His will will get done one way or another. If you decide to rebel from Him, He may still use you for His will, believe it or not. Hard for atheists to swallow that pill. But He wants us to be partakers in His will. He wants us to be partakers in His nature so that we can escape the corruption of the world, so that we can be used by Him to glorify Him, to, to advance His kingdom. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who, uh, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted us to his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How amazing is that? That the God who can influence the most powerful man in the world in Cyrus in the president of the United States and many different to do his will is the same all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God who desires to use each and every one of us specifically within His kingdom to give us a specific calling, a specific purpose to live in His plans, in His will. I close with this, Psalms 138, verse 8. Speaks this, it says, The Lord will fulfill His purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. The Lord has a purpose for us. The Lord has a plan for us. And beyond that, His love endures for us forever. That when He places a purpose on us, when He puts a plan on our lives, and we say, okay, God, I'm going to run with this. And we run with it. And after about four steps, we fall flat on our face, making dumb mistakes. That our God's love still endures forever, despite our human nature, despite our mess-ups, despite our faithlessness at times that His love endures forever, and so do His purposes, that even when we mess up, if we turn around and say, sorry God, let's get back on track, His love will never run out for us. That sounds like a God that I can put my trust in. That sounds like a God that's worthy of of our praise, of putting our efforts towards His will, because what we see in Scripture, what we see in history, even as recently as the 1940s, is that if God's got a plan, He's going to make it happen, with or without you. And He might even use you for it, and you don't even realize it. But God says He doesn't want to use you as a a worldly vessel to accomplish His plan. He wants to use you as a saint, as a righteous, redeemed person set free to be used for His glory and to someday step into His glory in eternity. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening.